1: They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
2: This podcast is brought to you by Maine Operation Game Thief, New Hampshire Wildlife Heritage Foundation, and International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. Listen to the Thin Green Line podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Game Wardens John Norris and Wayne Saunders talk about wildlife, the outdoors, law enforcement, environmental subjects mixed with current events and guests that are part of the Thin Green Line. And if you are one of those visual people, like me, for $5 a month, you can see the actual podcast on Patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on Patreon.com and join us.
1: We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair.
2: Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. On this Memorial Podcast Week, I would like to welcome a new advertiser. Sovereign Sportsman's Solution. And when I told their representative, Ben Page, that I would be starting their ads on the Memorial Podcast Week, Ben said to me, he said, Sovereign Sportsman Solutions would be honored to start on your Memorial Podcasts. So this podcast is brought to you by, in part, Sovereign Sportsman's Solution. As conservation officers, we know just how important technology is in this day and age. S3 is a cutting-edge and trusted vendor that provides state agencies with licensing, mobile, CRM, marketing, law enforcement, and event management solutions, all in one place. They are dedicated to benefiting the resource. So check out the link in the show notes to sign up for their newsletter and get industry's insights, news, content, and keep you up to date with the tech that drives conservation into the future. Welcome to Episode 59 of Warden's Watch for the Fallen. This episode is released on a Monday, a Monday that starts off our memorial Police Officer Week, which honors our fallen, whether you're a game warden, whether you're a law enforcement officer, park ranger, police officer, metro officer, any law enforcement that's been killed in the line of duty. And I think it's really special that we honor these people that have given that ultimate sacrifice, John, especially during the turmoil that's going on across our country, that we remember the guys that that they gave that ultimate sacrifice, you know, for whether it's for their brother, for their country, for their environment, for the resource, because we're going to hear stories about those guys too. So it really hits home. we got a special guest here to kind of introduce this and, and start off, and then we're going to roll into a Vermont game warden that was killed in the line of duty 43 years ago, and we have a special guest as well to to speak on that section, So because we want to remember all of them, whether it's long time ago, or whether it was just a few years ago, we want to remember these officers. So, so
3: important, isn't it, John? Yeah, Wayne, you hit it on the head when you talk about, I mean, this week coming up is heavy for all of us Mm. because you guys in New Hampshire, me coming from California, uh, I think about the game wardens I know and work with my new home state of Montana and just all of us on the thin green line, but more importantly, all of us on the first responder law enforcement sheepdog line. We have so many stories that you and myself and our special guests come that you're going to introduce here in a minute have been in the thin green line of conservation officers and officers we've lost either that we knew personally, that we worked with closely, or that we know through the brotherhood from other states. But especially now, uh, the turmoil that the country's in right now, the number of officer deaths that are just so senseless in some of these riots and uh, the civil unrest we have going on the political front uh, through COVID, uh, it's heartbreaking. Uh, and it's another testament to what we do as men and women when we put on that badge, kind of a, a selfless sacrifice, if you will, mm. especially when, unfortunately, law enforcement is viewed in such a negative light right now under a stereotype however erroneous or not, and, and what our officers are doing nationwide and the sacrifices they're making and the deaths that are occurring because of it. It's a it's a terrible, challenging time. We're not backing down. And this week is special that we honor the fallen and we respect the badge of everybody out there doing it for the sake of the community.
2: And I really couldn't think of a better guest to bring in on this conversation, John, than my own uh, former Colonel Kevin Jordan, because he he is the president of the New Hampshire Law Enforcement Memorial Association, which is something very unique that I've never seen before across the country where game wardens actually, you know, are, are presidents or are very involved with their law enforcement memorial. And certainly he has some history. He knows some of those names personally on that wall. And I'm going to let him to speak. To that. Certainly uh, happy, uh, Colonel Jordan, that you could uh, join us to for this week. And, and I know every law enforcement memorial, you usually do a speech, the governor usually introduce you, and COVID certainly has taken that a, a, away for, for last year, and it sounds like this year as well. So, but thank you for joining us. And if you could talk about the law enforcement memorial, your role and Anything else you want to talk about,
0: Colonel? <laughs> Absolutely. So, all through. good points. John, Wells said. Um, you're right. This is a this is a uh, a week that I don't want to say I look forward to, but I certainly look at this week wearing a badge different than I do any other week. Because I think it is a time to look back at some of those guys and gals that made the ultimate sacrifice doing what we're doing every day. And and we're not real good in this profession uh, on singing our own praises. So I think that those kind of sacrifices get lost in the shuffle of today. I also get concerned, um, and I don't want to get into politics of today, but I get concerned when I'm watching the news like everyone is, and you see a lot of the negativity that's coming out. A lot of, I got to tell you, a young police officer watching the news today is thinking to himself, if he's honest, he's thinking to himself, boy, I got to be real sure when I pull this gun out, if I'm ever put in that position, that I'm doing the right thing at the right moment. And to be honest with you, that's very dangerous. That's how we lose good police officers. Because if you take that two seconds extra on top of what we know from all the years of training the three of us have had to to second guess yourself that that may be too late. Uh, And that's concerning when I've got a field force half full of young officers who I'm sure are looking at things that way. So this is a good opportunity this week to let the public know quietly Respectfully, not quietly, but respectfully, that there are guys out there that are doing this, and guys and gals that are doing this, uh, absolutely correct. There are people out there who have made ultimate sacrifices and deserve and their families deserve the recognition that they've earned, uh, certainly. So, so yes, we in New Hampshire, we normally this week have, or May 14th, the week of May 14th, police week, we put on a, a really good service, I think. Uh, we've done it for years. We have the governor there, the attorney general's there. We read our role of honor. In New Hampshire, our role of honor consists of 51 names uh, of officers who have, who have made the ultimate sacrifice. We have five from the 1800s. The balance of those are, are from this century. Uh, Wayne is right. <laughs> Unfortunately, the longer you're in this business, the more of those names, you know, you know, and that whole second wall are all people that I knew, some that that Wayne and I even worked with. And and there are two names on that wall that were in the same shooting that almost took Wayne's life, uh, the shooting that we were all in in 1997. So where Wayne was, was uh, severely wounded and fortunately survived. So, all of that has a special place for me uh, based on experience and what these guys deserve. And so I've always considered it an honor to be on this. How Fishing Game ended on the, ended up on the New Hampshire one is a little unique. We had a major, Tim Aserno, who's still one of my board members. He had a brother-in-law who was a state trooper who was tragically killed a number of years ago. Uh, his family, the family of this fallen trooper, really was the initial driving force to create uh, the Memorial Association in New Hampshire and build a monument and so he started that way back years ago uh, as I came up in the ranks here for whatever reason uh, the major decided that I should be on that panel I think he knew how I felt you know I was very patriotic and and I had strong beliefs about officers and their sacrifices so he asked me to join the the board and I jumped at that opportunity and I've been on it ever since and i I uh, would later become the president of it, and I'm not going to give it up unless I die
1: <laughs> or
0: or get so old I can't stand up there any longer because nice. it means it means a great deal to me. Uh, not that there aren't others that can do it because I'm very fortunate. I have a board. Like any organization, we've got you know a, a big board, but you got 10 movers and shakers. So I have 10 of the finest police officers you could ever ask for that support this. And they're troopers, they're sheriffs, they're uh, local police, they're city police. Uh, and it, it just makes a great combination. So this year we cannot do the ceremony wise. Well, I say we cannot, we decided not to, you have to pull the trigger on that a little early to get everything set up for it. And I, in April, which was really at the last moment, we decided, you know, we just don't want to get some of our uh, survivors are some of the most vulnerable population. I just didn't want to run the risk of making them sick. They've, they've suffered enough. So we are going to do a virtual one for the first time. So it'll be filmed and shown on YouTube live as we do it. I'm going to have just the committee members there. We're going to do kind of a smaller version of it. Yep. With a couple of prayers and some taps, a gun salute. We're certainly going to call the roll of honor and put flowers in for every name, which I think is important to the family. So they'll be able to sit home in the safety of their home and watch it. And then next year, by God, we'll be back on the monument and putting on a putting on the ceremony they all deserve. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I think um, I guard it. Uh, passionately, quite frankly, I'm very, uh, I, I'm very active with the families and the survivor groups. I want them, uh, treated with respect and dignity, and I want them happy with how we do things. So we have them very involved. I have family members that are on my committee, uh, survivors. So we get a survivor's point of view of what we do. It's probably, uh, without question, the most challenging group that I work with because there are, as you can imagine, there are some very passionate people about how things occurred, what's happened since. Uh there's I'm not gonna lie to you, there's some bitterness with some families. I get that. You're gonna at some point you're gonna be angry about the loss of a loved one. I would be too. So all of those things play into that. And it's it's not easy managing all that, but it's very important that we do it and we do it well. And I think we do. We've set up a contact a book that goes out so the families can stay in close contact with each other—that I think has helped. Uh, put on a nice ceremony. We give them a, a great lunch afterwards, and it's nice to come into that community center when the ceremony's over and watch all those survivors and those agencies and those uniformed officers all sitting around a table eating and laughing and and sharing stories of their loved ones. That's that's kind of the high point of the day for me. It's an important—I think it's an important function, and I'm certainly going to stay playing a role in as long as they'll have me. <laughs> And my son actually has been handing out
2: the flowers for quite a long time. I was trying to think how far back he's been doing that. It's such an impact on him when he does it because, you know, he always tells his mother, I feel so sad for those people as I hand them their flowers to put in that reef. So it's had an impact on him, except I think if we do it next year, Kevin, he'll probably be six foot by that time.
0: So Yeah, he's getting big. You know, I was looking at him the last time we did the ceremony and I'm like, yeah, he's not little anymore. He's cute <laughs> when he's little. Now he's getting big. But you know, it's funny you mention that because from where I stand behind the podium there up on the memorial, as I watch that happening, you can see his face. Yeah. And it is it is an impact. You can see the impact mm. it's having on him to have those families come up and they smile and he hands them a carnation. And this is when we call their family member's name, and then they put the carnation in the star. So you can see his reaction. It is it is kind of neat to watch. So and it it's really neat that you you place the flower for the wounded officer who survived and your son hands it to you. That's kind of neat too. So uh, to have your whole family involved in it, it's nice. So, you know, it's the way I look at this is it's, you know, I, I can't, I can't go to that wall and look at those names without feeling a lot of wild uh, emotional feelings due to the friends that we've lost and the, and the shooting that we were in. So, you know, to be able to take that, all of that and spin it into a day that you can make some good out of it and see some people have some long-term effects and, and get those smiles and and see those interactions it's it's worth every second of the hard work we go through all through the year to fund it so it's all funded by donations so we have to do fundraising we uh, and that's a major job in itself so to keep that going because we're spending about seven thousand dollars every year to put that service on with the tents the chairs the dinner we buy a lunch we cater it And, uh, so we we're spending, and I probably could knock that back, but I got to tell you, I do it kicking and screaming because it's a big day. It has to be done right. Um, and, and it costs money to do things right. So we're always looking for new ways to fundraise. So that's the biggest Mm -hmm. challenge now is the fundraising. But, um, and we, you know, we take, I've put on it. We started in 1886 was the first officer in New Hampshire that I have, so far that was killed in the line of duty. And we're very careful how we verify that. Mm-hmm. Unlike the national wall, we will recognize a heart attack if an officer was in a uniform. And there's one in particular that was a friend of mine, uh, Buster Brooks, who died while on foot pursuit, chasing down a suspect in Amherst. I knew Buster since I was a kid. As far as I'm concerned, that's a, that's a, that's a cause of duty. So the national doesn't recognize that. We do. And we've got him up. The last one was Steve Arkell in 2014. Uh, and hopefully, <laughs> with any kind of luck, that'll be the last one I ever have to see carved in there. It's a beautiful monument, uh, it's a, and it's a great service. Well, Colonel, I got to say thank you for what you're doing out
3: there, because I, I, I don't know that everybody understands, as far as our listener base and the public in general, how much these ceremonies and these procedurals and these remembrances, if you will, really mean to not only the fallen officers' families, but all of us in that brotherhood and sisterhood to grieve, to heal. And Wayne, you think about your son who has seen this in your career and Kevin in your career and know that this is national and represented. It's so critical we have these ceremonies and it's so tough, like we just said, right guys, with COVID. But I can tell you right now, if we're operational next year, I wanna be at that ceremony. There's nothing like that personal connection when that flower is handed off, when that flag is waved, when, when that salute is made. And we, we've all lost a lot of near and dear friends, brothers and sisters combined. And uh, kudos to doing it, Colonel. It's real cool to hear more about it. And also for our listeners and our viewers to understand what that ceremony means, not only in New Hampshire, but what it means for the whole country. So thank you for bringing that to us.
0: And, you know, some of the some of the, meth, the best part of that memorial, while sad... The best part for me is some of the messaging that you get from the family. So as the families get to know you, they'll come up to you after the ceremony, before the ceremony, and they want to tell you their personal story. And the thing that always amazes me and, and something that I try my best to not forget every day is one thing that's very common with every one of these families is they say to me, you know, he left that morning and he gave me a kiss on the forehead and we had plans to go out for dinner Saturday night. We were going to see the kids on Sunday. We were going to go play, you know, he's coaching soccer. So we were going to go to the soccer game on Sunday and he just left to go to work on a normal day and never came back. And when I leave, uh, those, when you, when you get done hearing those stories and you leave the ceremony, you think about that, you know, when you go home and, and you have, you know, everybody fights with their wife or their significant other one. And maybe you don't take the time when you leave that morning to fix that. And you go out the door. What if you don't come back? And that's something that has always stuck in my mind. So even if <laughs> even if she's angry when I go, I yell back in, just know I love you. I'm <laughs> mad at you, but understand I love you with all my heart. Because you know what? You may not come back that night, John. Right. and And that's your one chance. And I'll tell you, people remember verbatim. That last conversation, I have never met a family member who couldn't tell me exactly what their loved one said the very last time they talked to him, be it hanging up on a cell phone. I can tell you one instance, hanging up on a cell phone one hour before he was in a shootout and killed, telling angry because she hadn't had time to put the second coat on the deck floor of a new porch she had just built. But she remembered that. And we're talking 10 years ago and she remembers that. So you know anyone who's listening out there, think about that because that could happen to anybody. you get killed in a car accident. It may sound may sound foolish to you, but to a family member it is critical uh, at the end that they knew that that last conversation wasn't wasn't one that we all have. Uh, take the time to tell them what they mean to you, because that, you know, if that's the last time, it's going to be very important. So that's, and I hear it. I have not held a ceremony when I haven't heard a story, not once. And it's good. I like that. I like hearing the different stories, but it makes me, I leave that ceremony thinking, yeah, I got to pay attention to that because I don't want my family doing that. I want to make sure they know how much I care about them when I left in case I don't return home tonight. So it's important. It's important to remember that.
3: Absolutely, Kevin. It's something we need to think about day in and day out when we get right. in the minutia of the stress of just life and right. snapping at our spouses, our loved ones, our kids, whatever the case may be. It's carved in stone, so that, hmm. that's something good to to pass on and something good to r- remind all of our officers. Right? Sure. And say what you mean if you're angry delay that <laughs> right it's okay <laughs> to be angry it's, it's okay, okay to be, to be angry. angry postpone that conversation hey i right. love you thanks for your right. support we'll figure this out i gotta go to work you and put you put that gun on you make sure they know what you yeah, mean to them, yeah. you know and especially if, if it heaven forbid it's that right. last conversation right that's a very, very good point to push on yeah
2: absolutely After, there's a couple things that are going on. I'd like to do a moment of silence. And the colonel always reads a poem at the end of the law enforcement memorial, the New Hampshire Law Enforcement Memorial, and I'd like him to read that. And then we will uh, hear from Game Warden Jeff Whipple, and he will tell the story of Game Warden Arnold Magoon and how he was killed in the line of duty in the state of Vermont. If we can just take a some seconds here and Colonel and when you when you're ready we'll take a moment of silence remembering all those law enforcement officers that have gave that ultimate sacrifice across this great land
0: and so at the end of uh, each service, Wayne's correct. At the end of our ceremony, I read a, uh, a little thing I'm about to share with you. And I actually want to give, I don't know who the author was, I'm ashamed to say. I saw it on a monument at a veteran cemetery. My dad's a veteran and I, and I go to the cemetery to, to see, visit his grave on occasion. And I saw this on a monument once and I thought it was very appropriate uh, for the law enforcement memorial. So I use it every year and we've done it every year for the last 10, but it reads as this. And I I think these are very good words to remember. Poor is the nation that has no heroes, but shameful is the nation that has heroes and forgets them. On today's Warden's
2: Watch podcast, we are beginning our memorial series, very small series. We're just going to do two memorial podcasts to two game wardens that were killed in the line of duty. And I have the honor and privilege of having a game warden, Jeff Whipple, today for Warden's Watch, who's going to speak about... Arnold Magoon, who was killed in the line of duty April 26, 1978, 43 years ago. And I will say, I've been introduced to Arnold probably as soon as I became a game warden, as soon as I started interacting with the Vermont game wardens because Arnold is the only game warden that's been killed in the line of duty in Vermont, which is an awesome thing, but a tragedy in itself because we never want anybody killed in the line of duty. But everything they do... Arnold Magoon's name is attached to it. Today I'm wearing a shirt that says uh, Game Warden Field Days 2008, Arnold Magoon. These guys have honored their fallen officer like nobody else that I know. Maybe because it's only one and you can do that, Jeff, but it is, uh, it's is—it's something to, to bring other game wardens from other agencies, other venues, and to remember your fallen officer and have an impact like that on them and talking earlier about
4: how much you guys honor you know
2: Arnold in all that you do and and everything which sure, I think yeah. is very special
4: yeah yeah that, that was a that was a wonderful um, <laughs> intro and, and 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 we do right so it's um it is our only fallen officer and we are fortunate for that it, it's Every law enforcement officers and an agency's worst fear um, for this to happen. Um, a felonious murder or any any death um, in the line of duty is, is awful for, not only for us as a warden service, but the citizens too. You mm-hmm. know, so it's the citizens of Vermont. They're, they're losing, you know, they're losing their local warden or, or their state warden, and they're also losing their friend too. And we do, we, we, this happened, you know, before I was born, almost 10 years before I was born. And, uh, you know, so it, we keep his memory alive, and yeah. with with literally everything we do, from from uh, fundraiser fun times to to training and um, all sorts of different things.
2: Right, and when I do this memorial podcast, I always like to take one from the past and one from closer to the present, so we don't forget the guys that were killed in the line of duty in 1978. Uh, you yeah, know, uh, that, that that seems like a long time ago. Yeah, I was only age nine at the time that this went on. But I, I think it's uh, really important. And the lessons learned, I, again, I say this on this podcast so many times, but we, we take and we learn things from the incidents uh, last year's memorial podcast. We talked about the changes with Idaho after they had their their murders of their officers. Uh, and the, Vermont was no different in this case. Uh, it, it, it developed... What you guys are today,
4: very much so. Yes, in this learning lessons in moving forward from a tragedy has possibly potentially saved others' lives, not just in our agency, um, in in law enforcement across the book or across the board in our in our small state, for sure. Mm-hmm.
2: And, and I'm I'm so happy you joined me because you, you shared that when you were in college, you actually did a paper on Arnold lagoon. And again, that just, it adds so much more to it. It makes it personal and I can tell it's personal to you. So much that you went and uh, just talked to some people that were there at the time, former lieutenant, I believe, that was actually on the force back then. You wanted to yeah. to make sure all your facts were right. And it puts you in the mindset, Jeff. And that's one thing, especially with these memorial podcasts, I have to be in the mindset. It takes me time to put my head around the incident and to, to kind of delve into it. You did the same thing. I know you did. You've been thinking about this ever since we set it up, and which wasn't that long ago, but uh, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you sure. actually dove into it.
4: Yeah. So going back to the college. Um, so I'm a native Vermonter. I I've, um, you know, I grew up in Vermont, went to school in New York and went to school to be a game warden and um, known that that's what I wanted to do. And when it came time in uh, wildlife, law, one of the wildlife law enforcement classes was write a paper on an incident that happened in any agency. And so I said, well, I had heard about this just, you know, from, from stories from, you know, game wardens when I was a kid, my dad was friends with a game warden, um, just talking to people. So I said, I want to I want to really find out what happened and and dive into this and write and write the paper on that particular particular night and and write it from you know the the scenario of kind of just overlooking you know if you were to take a sky view from it and see kind of what happened that night and 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 moving forward on you know this is certainly before before I was hired um but it uh I I, I don't remember what I got for a grade but um, <laughs> I I passed the class and uh got a degree and I'm here today so <laughs> And it may be the only report you remember that you wrote in college, too. <laughs> Very much so, yeah. I can, can't quite tell you what microbiology report I wrote, but uh, I can tell you almost word for word the paper I wrote in wildlife law enforcement for Arnold. Yeah,
2: and that's because you, you planned on being a game warden. This incident, uh, even as a college student, was having an impact on you. And, boy, like I said, uh, all, all the wardens in Vermont have certainly honored Arnold's memory. And we we can talk a little more about the the 40-year uh memorial that you guys did, but maybe we should do that at the end. Maybe we should share with our listeners Arnold's story. And can we go back with Arnold? I mean, do you know what year he was kind came into the the agency and
4: Yeah, I'm not sure the year that he came in, but he had been on for some time and actually worked his way up from a field warden mm-hmm. um, up into a warden supervisor, so which we now call lieutenant's. They were salary pay back then. Um He was uh, the supervisor he lived in Brandon, Vermont, which is in Rutland County. Supervised his local guys around him,
2: so as Vermont goes that's kind of more towards the west, a little central west yep in south yeah okay yep. central west yep. south yep. I just I know where Rutland is, so I'm just trying sure. to think of yeah, that Yeah, and, and the town,
4: he. so if you know Rutland City, the town he lived in was may, maybe 20 minutes outside of outside of the city, 25 yeah, Very so.
2: agricultural. Yes. Very rolling hills, lots of fields. Lots, lots of fields. Lots, lots of, of
4: deer. Lots of deer. Yes. Yeah, yeah for, for the deer hunters listening. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, and, and deer jacking was the thing. Um, and so when we get into the story, that's essentially the incident that, that he was responding to. Mm. Um, it, it And it happened, if we want to roll into it. Yeah. Um, so it was this time time of recording. Now it it, it was this time of the year. So uh, not a super common deer
2: yeah. a- time. April, right?
4: April, yeah. And everybody, the deer are in the fields for sure. But they're coming off of winter and they're shedding, and it's just not a not a super common now i've always
2: heard poachers say that they don't taste right this time of year because they've been eating whether it's cedar or something else that sure you know a, a poacher that's that's picky about his meat uh doesn't usually shoot a spring deer
4: not typically uh. <laughs> yeah yeah i am um, when i first moved to the district i'm at now um one of the the first um kind of locals that i met he said oh you know you're the new game warden and He goes, well, you got here at the right time. I had moved there in June. And he said, oh, they're going to be ready to fry by the 4th of July. So I'm thinking, (laughs) wait, what? And then he just got in his old farm pickup and drove off. And I was like, he's talking about deer. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I knew I was going to have my work cut out for me.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's probably a saying, they're ready to fry by the 4th of July. Yeah. How come that's when their whole system's probably switched over to that nice green grass and they're starting to taste good again?
4: Uh, Yeah, I guess so. Um, Maybe I'll... Keep a Independence Day roadkill this year and try that. Yeah,
2: method. try that
4: out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well. So it was, um, it was, it was the night of April twenty sixth, nineteen seventy eight, where Arnold lived. There was, there was several fields on the way up to the house, um, and he. So it was in the evening time. It was at night. Um, he had heard. He he was out. I believe he was out on his porch and um, heard the gunshot. So, and it was close. Um, so and he knew where fields were and um, so he hops in as fires up the 1974 Plymouth Fury <laughs> mm. and uh, back in the rear wheel drive car but cruisers. that was an issued cruiser as an issued cruiser yeah yeah so
2: I mean that was the time frame when they were probably starting to issue cruisers back in that time frame because prior to then that uh, you know they would use their own vehicles sure yeah oh but yeah, yeah so
4: yeah. a Plymouth Fury yeah. uh cruiser yeah and to think about the you know, if we complain about our trucks ever, um, we shouldn't. <laughs> just just thinking about a a rear rear wheel drive car going up to some hunting camp somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and I remember the wardens talking
2: about that transition. Those first pickups were like a godsend. Yeah, they just
4: couldn't even believe it.
2: And it may be you know rear wheel drive with one wheel turning, but they certainly appreciated the pickup truck. Yeah,
4: the first ones might not have had air conditioning, but uh, they had a bed for things to throw in. Yeah, um,
2: no, I know they appreciated
4: that. So, but lieutenants still usually drive us. Uh, Something
2: that you can't throw something dead in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a whole good thing and a bad thing. We, we've we had that discussion. So, uh, having driven one at f- the, the end of my career, I got used to it, but I will say that first year was a, a learning experience trying to fit dead things into your cruiser. Yeah. Um, yeah, so. and it may be the cleanup after, too. Would that would interesting. Exactly. So, the Plymouth Fury um, and Furies, I don't think, had a big trunk
4: either. That's, that's, uh, yeah. They were yeah, so a fast vehicle, I they're think. They're very fast car, yeah. 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 Oh, but not a lot of trunk room. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Big bench seats and, um, they're fast, but that's,
2: now, um, that picture, you sent me a picture of, of Arnold sitting in. Is that the Fury, you think? Yes. Or, okay, yep. that's, that's his the car. Fury.
4: Yeah. Great. We're going to have to share that on the
2: internet or I've use got that a, for a cover or something because he's sitting in behind the wheel and, and writing something uh, with his Stetson on. A uh, very iconic picture. And it I just very much is, yeah. That uh, Fury was that so we can that connect that photo with this podcast and uh, get some visuals.
4: Sure. Oh, uh, yeah, th- yeah. that's really cool. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, so he hear's the shot, and um you know jumps in the car and takes off, and immediately you know comes around the corner and there there's a vehicle in the field, and you know how many times have we we've seen that that's game Warden and bread and butter right there yep. this is what we live for mm-hmm. shuts the car off, shuts his cruiser off, turns the lights off, hops out, um, and heads down into the field with no flashlight on, comes around the corner, and at this time, they have already loaded the deer. he didn't know that they had a deer at that point. Um, they had loaded it, and they were coming out of the field. They're coming right at him, and he's standing there looking at both the headlights, shines a flashlight into uh, into the windshield, trying to identify maybe to see who it is, and, and he can't see because the lights are on. The car is coming right directly at him, and then they, they did swerve to get around him. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the interesting part that um, I we, we certainly don't do um, in today's law enforcement, but when it was common practice back then— when a car was running from you and you were on foot, the way it was told to me was you can try and put an identification marker on the vehicle, which in simple down means use anything you can to try and smash something on the car. Mm-hmm. Whether it make a scratch, you put a dent in it. Um, and so that was common practice when, when mm-hmm. you're trying to stop somebody on foot patrol. So Arnold steps to the left. The car whips around. He, on a full... One-handed swing uses the mag light to try and dent the car or knock a mirror off or something. Um, and that mag light made contact with the glass of one of the windows and dropped it. It just it shattered it. Mm. So the car takes off and it gets back to the road <clears throat> and then starts speeding away. He runs back to the back to the Plymouth and that car was fast and yeah. he got on him quick. And when he did, it was as soon as he could see them they started throwing evidence out Mm. the door was open and they're throwing whatever out, out the, out the passenger side of that car. And we've, we've talked to several people um, that were, that were on and uh, they threw everything out, uh, which is even funny to include the deer. (laughs) Um, So they had uh, the deer somehow came out of the car. um, And then once they got everything thrown out, within a short distance they pulled over mm. so they stopped and so he hops out um i just
2: thought that whole visionary as you're driving down in pursuit as things are flying out guns uh lights yeah. and and there goes the deer <laughs> and how many how many times right so yeah they, oh. how many
4: times have you seen that the crossbow come flying out the window yeah and, yeah and it's it's, like
2: now i don't have it i'll pull over yeah, yeah, yeah. It's maybe a sense of
4: I'm not sure. But, uh, I don't. I know. I, yeah, I've never seen a deer come flying out. But, no, uh, I,
2: I'm sure that was uh, something just <laughs> to, to see. Actually, come yeah. out, come come out of the vehicle it was a whole deer. What a time for cruiser cams! Oh yeah, I yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Just the visual in itself. As a, as we're talking about it, I can
4: just see things flying and uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. they pull over Yeah so they pull over um, He pulls up behind him like we would normally do a, a typical traffic stop Hops out of the car and, and approaches <clears throat> And this is an interesting point of the story When he approaches the vehicle He looks in and identifies There's two male subjects in there and a female He looks at one of the man, one of the young men That were in there and immediately recognizes him As one of his son's best friends Or very close friend Who had been at his house days before um, So he thinks you know he knows this guy. He he knows him personally. Um, knows mm. the family. Know, knows, you know, his, him and his son grew up together. So he gets the three out of the vehicle like we would normally do, right? So okay. and then the interviews start. You know, who shot this and that? Figuring out, you know, getting to the bottom of it. Figures it out. So he goes back, and they were making some headway on on the incident. And they um, he retrieves his citation book out of the car, out of the back seat. Goes to the front of his cruiser between the headlights. Has the the three subjects standing. Um, i'm not sure if they were left or right but they were they were there and mm-hmm. one at a time he's cutting citations yeah so and i'm
2: thinking he's angry and disappointed if he's his right so <laughs> you
4: know yeah and you think about it's, it's disappointment um totally because it's you, you know yeah you don't expect somebody that you're close to to blatantly it, it's for me um you know if i were to ever have that an incident where it's one of you know a family's close friend it's kind of like a slap in the face to the mm-hmm. board. and it's like you know it yeah it, that's it's,
2: exactly what i was thinking jeff i mean you put yourself in his shoes and the, the kid that was there three days ago. And I think of my son's, you know, kid, friends that sure. are at my house yeah. and hanging out and the relationship that we have um, just to be at the house and then to do something like that. I'd be angry, disappointed. And I'm sure Arnold was feeling all of that right then. Um,
4: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We, which, you know, and and like we, we've, you, you put yourself in, in his shoes. Now that you know this person personally, you know, mm-hmm. my, I know for me, my guard is gonna be let down. Mm-hmm. I, I know this person. You know they're they're a family friend. I, right.
2: So and how many times have we just known poachers and called them by their first name, oh, daily? You basis. know yeah. exactly. And it and it does it de escalates on both sides when you know their first name, and usually they can take their lumps if if you have a relationship with them. Right. Uh, I remember you know some of my poachers. I can. Yeah, you got me. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and that, that I I always really appreciated that. Yeah, I knew I always knew you were a poacher. You know, I'm the game warden. When you when when you get caught, you got me, and I, I appreciate that kind of poacher rather than the guy that I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. Uh, and then it still we,
4: takes a few of those to keep the job interesting. <laughs> uh, there's but, no doubt, yeah. but you're, you're right. When you have a relationship with an individual, it you let your you let your guard down. You totally do, and, you know? and I've you know I've went over this case hundreds of times, and and. In scenarios where I've done the exact same thing, Mm -hmm. Um, so so he gets so we're we're working through citations, and um, he so he's cutting the citations and he's filling them out in the flashlight. It's not a hundred percent determined where it exactly was, Um, so he's got one of the big D cell mag lights. Mm -hmm. Um, So which standard issue to to most law enforcement, everybody now carries the you know the the super bright um, LED stuff, right? But the the mag light is on. We believe it's on the hood of the car, mm-hmm. using so it's pointing down towards the citation. So if you can create a visual, so he's using that light, to, using that light to write by. Absolutely, he, he has to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the older of the two subjects lunged, grabbed the flashlight, turned, and struck him in the head very hard. Is hard enough to knock him to the ground. And Arnold was a big guy, and when he hit the ground, the subject stood over the top of him in multiple strikes to the head with a flashlight causing skull fractures causing unconsciousness immediately when he was down after several strikes to the head the three ran back to their car jumped in their vehicle and took off mm-hmm. leaving him to die on the side of the road on, on the side of on the side of the road that he lives on
2: legend to death just yeah. brutally just kept smacking him
4: pretty personable when you think about how how brutal that is it's just that's a that's an awful way awful way to go yeah. So then when, when, um, when he wasn't responsive on the radio, other wardens started coming that way. Another warden out of Rutland County heard the call um, before, before, you know, when Arnold was in pursuit and, and started heading that way. Mm. Um, when other wardens showed up, he was transported to the hospital um, and then was in the hospital overnight. And they made the final, final call um, the next morning on April 27th. Um, mm-hmm. 1878 is when they pronounced him deceased. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty powerful. And, and you think about how many times as us out there that are listeners that are, that are wildlife law enforcement officers, how many times have you stood by the hood of your patrol vehicle? It's simple as writing a, even a fisherman letter a license ticket mm-hmm. and you look and you know, the fisherman standing there to your left you fill out maybe his driver's license number and you look up and he's not standing there anymore. Mm. Where did he go? Where did, you know, so it's something to keep aware of. Right. Um, Absolutely. And we immediately after, after the incident with Arnold, some new policies went into effect. Um, Back then it was not uncommon for game wardens to not wear a gun belt. Um, So the gun belt was there. And it was there that night, and it was in the back seat of the car mm-hmm. and uh, it was believed that he took off so fast um, and rushed to the scene um, and wasn't wearing the gun belt, right which was not uncommon mm-hmm. that, that when when I talked to the the guys that worked in that era it was that's what people did right. several times
2: yeah, and that's like you said, that's the changes. the gun and the gun belt became part of the uniform, and if you were wearing the uniform. That was part of it. Absolutely.
4: And oh. you know, could it have prevented an incident? At the speed that the first strike happened, it would have been mm-hmm. nearly impossible to draw and fire, um, even right. from the fastest person. But is the appearance a deterrent? Right. You know, is is having at that you know, at that point having a revolver six shooter on, on your hip, is that a deterrent? Yeah. Or know, would for, have
2: Arnold Blood shot to death after the first hit and you know absolutely. That, that's I, I, absolutely you, you know we can do those scenarios. And it's good that we do those scenarios in the aftermath Yeah, um, to, to understand, like you said, to make that part of the uniform, to keep your eyes on the subjects, even when you know them very well.
4: And yeah. I think it's, it's, it's an absolute take home message when you, when we train as a warden service, every time, you know, it, mentioning when we say we keep Arnold's memory alive, every, every time, Firearms training, defensive tactics training. We have. We will start the day with a moment of silence in Arnold's name, and to think about that incident and really, you know, put your mindset in. Okay, today is training day. This could keep me alive someday. This mm-hmm. could, you know, whether it be scenarios or or drills with with all sorts of the different firearms or, or whatever. When you put yourself in that mindset, thinking, you know, this is uh, this could have been me at some point, and right. you know, and and maybe maybe that saved. Law enforcement maybe that saved other game wardens in our state and in in other law enforcement agencies as well I hope you uh certainly honor
2: him Vermont uh I'm sure Arnold is well aware of what you guys do in his name uh like I said from the the beginning of becoming a New Hampshire warden, I was certainly familiar with uh Arnold Magoon's name. And every, every place we went, Arnold's was there. If you guys had an event, it was usually in his name. When you talk about training to have that moment of silence, uh, remembering him too, I think that's pretty awesome. Cause again, you're putting your mindset in it. This is why we train. We lost an officer. We never want to lose another officer. So, and this is why we train. This is why we try to stay vigilant with with every encounter with every person no that's, that's that's the ultimate sacrifice arnold gave for the natural resources of vermont and you know certainly was willing with like every officer to to delay his life uh, down for a friend to or do anything he could in the performance of his duties and yeah it's it's, it's a tragic story but again it's it's one i want everybody to know I want them to know Arnold
4: Magoon, Vermont Game Warden, gave that ultimate sacrifice. Absolutely. Yeah, and we we um on the forty year mark, um, which was in two thousand eighteen, um, we had created a monument at the at the place that it happened. And there's Ooh. a there's a beautiful granite monument. Marked there at, at the location, we ha- we held a nice ceremony where um, every warden was there in, in our class A parade dress uniforms. Um, we had some had some retired guys speak. We had some uh, state historians speak. Um, it was a it was a wonderful wonderful tribute on the 40 year mark, and and here we are at 43 years. Um, mm. And it's a it's a somber, pretty powerful day here at time of recording. When you know you think about 43 years ago tonight, essentially. I mean, it happened, and yeah yeah,
2: oh, and that's that's a great marker again, we'll put those pictures out for our listeners so they can see it because that is a is a great tribute uh, for Arnold to have that marker there, and it's it's pretty impressive and you know game wardens through our history have had an impact, and when you said on the community, uh, certainly uh, that time frame, that error, those guys were so much a part of their community because communities were smaller, yeah. Stopping to get a coffee, you you knew almost everybody by name. He probably knew all of his poachers by name. Oh, I'm sure, I'm yeah, sure. You know, so it's but it, it starts to take that step up uh, when you start losing officers when you're when they're part of the community. It uh, it, it it certainly uh has an impact. And now that that monument has an impact, everybody that drives by and sees it. And I don't know how many people I see along the side road stopping to read monuments. And yeah. I I think that's pretty cool because. As a warden, I think I read every one in Absolutely. my patrol. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All those historic markers, I wanted to know what happened. Sure. Uh, yeah, and and in the north country here in New Hampshire, we have some that are dedicated to game wardens, which uh, I'm pretty dang proud of. That's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Perry Hurlbert has one off of Route 16. Brian Abrams has one off of 302. Just the guys that had an impact on the community and on the North Country, and their communities paid tribute to them by those markers um, as much as the officers that that knew them and loved them for sure, and their family members. Because yeah, uh, Arnold was a you know he was a father, he was a husband, he was a community member, he was all those things and yet he, wildlife was something probably that instilled them just like you and I yeah it's it's a passion and to help preserve that for our future generations to be that force that that fights those poachers that
4: don't really care about our natural resources what more wonderful way to protect wildlife than to be on the front lines mhm absolutely some and unfortunately it does come with with a cost at some sometimes we just we train and try to prevent any future incidents and mhm yeah, we well, certainly.
2: You guys do that. You guys give Arnold a huge tribute at, every time you can, and you you don't forget his sacrifice, which is 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 pretty awesome, Jeff. And I'm so happy you were able to to tell his story
4: with us. Yeah, this is this is wonderful. I love. Thank you for the invite and um, just to to spread the message out there. And and you know, 1978 seems like a long, a long time ago for especially folks that are in my age group. Mm-hmm. Um, that was. Uh, You know, being in my mid-30s, it was certainly before my time, but to be able to keep the legend alive and and to tell the story and to let other folks know that what happened there the night of April 26th. Yeah,
2: yeah. and from start from in college to to start (laughs) reflecting on that till, you know, this podcast and that 40-year memorial and and the so many things in the future that are going to bear Arnold's name, as I know the Vermont Game Wardens do quite a tribute. Uh, I know Arnold is, is very appreciative of it. So again, thanks for joining Jeff. Um, we're certainly going to talk here and uh, get, get a little more about Jeff Whipple, uh, the game warden uh, in the future. So uh, you'll look forward to hearing more about Jeff. So.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me, Wayne. It's been great.
2: is Warden's Watch.